Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by food writer and cook, Allison Roman. For the past two decades, Roman has been a culinary force. First in Los Angeles, then in New York City. Of course, you likely first encountered Roman's work hosting cooking videos for Bon Appetit, many of which went viral. She then collected some of the hit recipes and put them into her first cookbook, Dining In, which came out back in 2017, the same year she started as a food columnist at the New York Times. Through each endeavor, Roman's mission statement is to create concise, resourceful recipes for people, kind of like myself, that may not always have the right ingredients, the high-tech equipment, or really the time to invest in a laborious meal. I could also just say people that are new to cooking, like me. The approachability of her work and the humor she leads with is why many turn to her in the throes of the pandemic. We talk about that period later in this conversation, which naturally dovetails into a discussion around the criticism she directed at Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo in May of 2020, and then, of course, the subsequent fallout from those remarks. I know many have complicated feelings about Roman, her work, and especially these comments. We get into all of that in great detail in the middle of this talk. And I think by the end, you'll have a better sense of not only where those comments come from, but where she's coming from. First, we begin with her newest collection of recipes entitled Sweet Enough, a Dessert Cookbook. It's an ode to her early years as a restaurant pastry chef, which we also discuss in this conversation. Along with the chaotic conditions of working in the service industry, Allison's work at the Milk Bar under the tutelage of Chef Christina Tosi, her rapid ascent at the Times, the idea of cancellation, the lessons she learned from it, and a whole lot more. She likes to refer to her books as time capsules, and in the hour ahead, we try to chart her evolution all the same. So, with that, this is Allison Roman. Allison Roman. Hello. 
pleasure to meet you. Such a pleasure to be here and to meet you. How are you feeling? I'm actually feeling really good today. Why actually? Um, Because I've been on the road for a while and I haven't been taking care of myself. There's like not been a lot of sleeping. Book tours are very intense. And today I actually feel great. You woke up at a reasonable time? Yeah, I had a side bowl for breakfast. <laughs> not on purpose. It was kind of an accident. Will you be returning to that accident? No. That was a first and last. A one and done. Yeah. I'm glad I experienced it. I don't need to do it again. Maybe you go back to it in your 40s. Yeah, I'll revisit. Okay. Late 40s, 50s. I want to start with this new cookbook of yours. It's called Sweet Enough, Desserts for People Who Don't Desert, which evidently definitely describes me. Uh, but you said recently, I'm not measured or precise. My culinary style is more like jazz, whereas baking is classical. So with that, mm. you're sort of cringing at your own quote. <laughs> well, writing is so different. And then when you hear it, you're like, oh. Well, to be fair, that was spoken. Oh, wow. Okay. Does that make you feel better or worse? Better? <laughs> question mark. But I also stand by it. I think when I said it, I probably had a bit of like a tongue-in-cheek energy, whereas you just read it very seriously. Mm -hmm. So, you know, out of context, <laughs> emotionally. I'll try to apply more tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, let's let's loosen up a bit. Okay. Yeah. Why did you want to take this book on if jazz is your typical style? Well, if you really want to take the music analogy to its furthest possible conclusion, which you might. Which, I of don't course, know. I do. But so I used to be a pastry chef, like, professionally. That was my first job in food. It was my first job, like as a 19-year-old person living in the world. And the only reason I took the job was because it was the only opening they had in the restaurant. And I learned how to do desserts from like a very intense, very precise, very technical place, right? It was like fine dining, tasting many restaurants, very intense. And now, 15, 16, 17 years later, I'm able to sort of take what I want from that and do what I want. And I think I've never said this out loud and somebody else is going to quote me and I'm going to cringe. But I think what makes jazz so interesting is that these musicians have all of the technical skill. They know how to do things well. They know how to read music. They know how to write music. They know how to play instruments. You take that information and you can kind of free yourself to make something out of the sort of parameters, out of structure. So you freed yourself. I'm a jazz musician. Yes. <laughs> and you know, the boring answer to that question is my editor was like, you should make a dessert book. And they wanted it to be the second book. And I said, no way. As a bargain, I'll do it as a third book. Is that how you negotiate? Yeah. I say not now, but later. And then sometimes later becomes never. <laughs> but I think this was fun because I also had maybe been a little bit fatigued of writing cookbooks because the first two are, you know, siblings are very similar. It's like a two full books of over 120 recipes each of like savory food, what to make for dinner, how to feed yourself. And to do a third book in the same vein felt like even I needed kind of a reset. Mm -hmm. And doing a single subject book like this really felt like a good reset. Well, the book is pretty disarming. As someone who had never baked before. Wow. That is me. Before like weeks ago and now you're... Before this Monday <laughs> when I started preparation for this podcast, I was, uh, as you write in the book, the once a year bakers, the twice a week cake makers... For those who can only manage to open a carton of heavy cream and pour it onto some fresh fruit. I was like one of the once in 28 years bakers. That was me. So I decided to make one of these recipes. Which one was that? Was it... it is the raspberry ricotta cake. Okay. But in order to do that, I had to make a visit to my local Williams-Sonoma. Why? Over a cake pan. I had none of it. I had none of well, the things. All you need... Oh, you didn't own a whisk? I had one whisk, but it was kind of weak. I need was I need, it plastic? It was kind of plasticky. Yeah. Did you buy like the set from Bed Bath and Beyond where it okay. comes with like <laughs> a spatula and a whisk and a thing, and it's like four ninety nine, and you're like, this will do. Yes. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I am, you know, a single person living alone. Mm. I cook plenty, but I just never baked. Yeah, the baking is tough for one person. I'll give you that. So I'm gonna walk you through this. I went to the William Sonoma. I had been putting this off for a long time because I felt like the moment I walked through the doors of that store, like childhood is over. The adulthood's beginning. Yeah, it's basically a you had a bar mitzvah. Yeah, I became a man. Because <laughs> once you're walking through and you're getting excited about like zesters, like you can't go back. No, it's like fun's over, boys. That's what happened to me this week. bittersweet for you, I'm sure. You said goodbye to the boy and hello to the man. <laughs> 
was tough. It was really hard. Um, so I go home with the new whisk, a couple of mixing bowls that didn't I didn't own. I had some mixing, but they were just not very good. I, okay. I upgraded. I got a meat thermometer. Unrelated to this Completely cake. unrelated, but I got excited. That's the problem with the store. It's a dangerous place. I would say that's the good thing about that place. You know, my bank account would say otherwise. Right. But don't let, you know, don't begrudge the enthusiasm you felt. It is so rare you can feel excitement these days. And if that's going to Williamson, I'm buying a meat thermometer, go with it. I was elated. I walked out of the store on cloud nine. <laughs> I go home and I make the cake that started it all, as you write, uh, this raspberry ricotta cake. Mm -hmm. We'll get to how that turned out at the end of this oh, episode. Oh, no. Well, that doesn't bode well. No, it's just, just got to throw something for later. We got to keep something okay. for later. Right. No, no. Turn well, I'm curious, but, you know. Well, you'll, you can ask me later. Okay. <laughs> but the simplicity of this recipe, is it emblematic of the kind of cookbook that you wanted to make? Because baking is, to many people, daunting because of the precision people believe it requires. Right. And I am just not a precise person. I am a antithetical to being a Virgo. I am sort of chaotic in the kitchen. And I'm also kind of lazy. And... Again, I think because I know how to do everything the right way, I ignore a lot of rules. Ah. I'm like, ah, I don't have to do it that way. And I sort of make my own rules, basically. Yeah. This recipe to me is you don't need any equipment other than a functioning whisk, which is like the bare minimum. So I don't even consider that special. Sorry. And a cake pan. I didn't have one of those either. Well, of course not. Yeah, you didn't even have a whisk. I had a whisk. I make eggs. Come on. I had a whisk. Okay. It just wasn't very good. That's fair. And yeah. now you have a good one. You're a man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this cake, it's made in one bowl. You don't need to, like, know any technique. And yes. I think that the ingredients in it, i.e., there's enough eggs and ricotta and fruit, that even on your worst day of mismeasuring or, like, miscalculating or something, it can't go so wrong, but you're mm -hmm. looking at me like maybe it did for you. But nope. we won't know for a while because uh, you're making me wait. But I'm, I, you know, I'm making everyone wait. <laughs> we are, we are collectively all waiting Look, together. That's true. The recipe takes an hour to make. Yeah, but that's the other thing about baking that people hate. It's not instant gratification, right? But see, that's why at the end of this hour, oh, we'll I find see what out. you're doing. You are a storyteller. There's a narrative arc here, and I am with it. Most people do know you for your cooking, mm -hmm. but you mentioned that 18, 19-year-old self that started as a pastry chef. Mm -hmm. I want to set the context for that a little bit more. You grow up in the San Fernando Valley mm -hmm. through the mid-90s. Your mother was a court reporter, your father a businessman. They split up by the time you're two years old. After graduating from this private Catholic high school, you head to Santa Monica City College mm -hmm. in an attempt to ditch what you've called Allie from the Valley. Somewhere in that time, you have a boyfriend, we're not going to talk about him, who introduces you to a restaurant called Sona in West Hollywood. But I want to sit with that one specific day. I think it's in 2003. Okay. Where you meet Ron Mendoza. Yeah. What happened? I went to Santa Monica City College. Then I moved to Santa Cruz and I went to college there for a year. Decided I was going to leave college and go to culinary school. So I moved back to Los Angeles. And before I was fully enrolled in culinary school, I was like, I need to like line up a job because how else am I going to afford culinary school? So I went to Sona and I knocked on the back door of the restaurant and I said, hello, my name is Allison Roman. I would like to speak with the chef. And Ron answered the door and he said, oh, well, he's not here, but I'm Ron. What can I help you with? And I said, oh, well, my name's Allison and I would love to work here. And I was so nervous. I didn't know what I was going to say. I had no plan. And he's like, OK. And I was like, I'm going to go to culinary school and would sort of just love to talk to you about your advice for me. And if you have any openings, I'd love to just learn and work here. And basically his advice to me was don't go to culinary school. We opened a bakery across the street. We may have an opening there, but we don't have anything available in the restaurant. Long story long. Basically, he gave me a job at the bakery across the street. I made seven dollars and 25 cents an hour to like cut marshmallows and fuck up every day. I was messing things up left and right. But I think they could tell I really liked being there. I really liked to learn. I mm -hmm. was so willing to do anything and work for no money that they never fired me. Before we talk about that job, how did you know to knock on the back door? Like what propelled you to do that? That's a very active thing to do as a 19-year-old. Honestly, I think like 
bold gumption. Yeah, of just being like, I want this thing and I'm going to ask for it, kind of. But my plan was to go to culinary school. And I was sort of implying that while I'm in culinary school, I'll intern with you. Like, I'll work for free. But instead, it turned into them paying me. Paying you to cut marshmallows. Yeah, I didn't. They didn't trust me with anything. And nor should they have. I was awful at everything. I didn't know anything. I knew less than you last Monday. It's good you can insult me. Yeah. (laughs) Of that job, you said, I walked home crying every day, but not once did I think about quitting. I figured I'll stop crying when they stop being mean to me, and they'll stop being mean to me when I stop screwing up. I wonder if that mentality, especially in 2023, may be hard for some people to process. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that that was sort of like I understood why they were mean to me. I understood why they were rude to me. I understood why they were annoyed by me because I made their jobs harder. I created more work for people. I took time out of their day. They had to redo things like it was pretty bad. And if I'm them, I'm annoyed with me. But I was so set on being good, not for approval from any one specific person, but just because like I kind of was like, I'm going to be good at this one day. All I did was read cookbooks. And all I would do was like have my notebook and like write down ideas for dishes. And I would eat at restaurants. But I mean, I was so broke at the time and I had no free time because I was working constantly. So I wasn't like going out to nice restaurants. I had very limited sort of vantage of what Mm -hmm. else was out there. This is also pre-internet. So like I would read Jonathan Gold and like go to a restaurant in San Gabriel Valley or try a, a, you know, a restaurant that was on like the 50 best LA restaurants list in the LA Times, like information traveled much slower Uh at that time. And so books were like a real portal into what else existed in the world. But also what was happening in your world sounds like pretty chaotic and aggressive and combative. Mm -hmm. Was some part of you attracted to that? Absolutely. I think that any person that enters into the restaurant industry especially at a young age, like there is an element to you where you feel at home in chaos. You somehow feel at home with toxicity. Why do you think that was? You know, I didn't have what I would call a peaceful childhood. And I'm not saying the two are directly correlated, but they're probably not not correlated. And if you pulled 10 people who work in restaurants, like eight of them would say the same exact thing. And it was also just like I felt like a very creative person my whole life, but never really knew what my avenue was until I found cooking. Like, I tried painting. I wasn't very good at it. I've always been a writer, but like not a good one. It's just like a medium that I enjoyed. I wasn't especially musical. I wasn't especially physical. Like, I played sports, but wasn't very good at them. Like, I tried a lot of things and nothing really stuck with me until I started cooking. And that was when I felt fulfilled and gratified, stimulated excited by something on all levels, like intellectually, physically, artistically, creatively, emotionally, like it filled every cup for me at a really young age. Most people listening, I've probably not had that experience of Mm -hmm. working in a kitchen like that. And it's fascinating to hear how the excitement and joy that you found in cooking was also wrapped up in this toxic environment like it's all it's all like they're sort of inextricably linked but it wasn't so bad and I I feel the need to like not that I'm defensive of it or that time but there are a lot of people who've had really awful experiences in restaurants and I'm not one of them I think that no I think the restaurant I'm an emotional person I'm a crier so to be like yeah I cried every day it's like okay well I'm a crier I am sensitive to other people's energies and what they say to me and I get my feelings hurt and this that and the other So it does develop, you develop like a really tough skin in a restaurant, but also maybe a person who's not as sensitive as me wouldn't have that experience. But nothing was so egregious or so violent or so toxic that I felt scarred or I look back being like, I can't believe I endured that. It was just intense and not typical of a work environment. In recent years, there have been so many articles. You're like the bear. It's the bear. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Sure. The bear, podcasts, articles, shows, movies that have aimed to unpack and expose the toxicity of this place. You said when those pieces of art came out, as they continue to come out, I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised. I'm not horrified. Nothing about it was shocking. And people don't even know the half of it. What do people not know (laughs) that Um, they ought to know? Because most of the time when a person is brought down in a media capacity... And there's like one story that leaks. There's a thousand of them. 
behind it. I think that's more what I mean by you don't know the half of it. And it's sort of like when these stories come out about restaurant work environments and you're mostly focused on, like, say, a sexual aspect. There's a harassment situation. There's an inappropriate boss or leader. And that's something that people can really point to and say, like, this is objectively not okay. Mm. And what lurks behind that is just like the everyday indignations of like the way people speak to each other that is aggressive passive aggressive rude cutting and the flip side of this is restaurants can also be glorious and family oriented and very like supportive and special and they can be a lot of different things and again my experiences have just been like not ever that bad I was always Mm -hmm. one of the youngest people in the kitchen and almost always the only woman it was like me and like one or two other women but I was the youngest person by like Anywhere from five to 15 years all the time. Well, let's talk about one of those experiences Mm -hmm. because you're 24 years old. You moved to New York City. You land this job at a place called Milk Bar. Mm -hmm. It's there that you're working with founder and chef named Christina Tosi. What did she teach you about work ethic? She taught me a lot about work ethic. She is probably one of the hardest working people that I had ever worked with and had like a very intense drive to succeed and to make the thing that she wanted come to life. What did that look like? Intense. (laughs) It was really intense. It was not always fun. And sometimes it was the most fun I've ever had. I met amazing people there. I met, it was like almost all women. From the time that I started there, it was like eight of us. By the time I had left, You know, it had scaled so rapidly in such a short period of time that it Mm. became, you know, something very different. But that was her plan. She wanted to dominate. She wanted to be everywhere. She wanted to be in the stores. She wanted to have multiple bakeries in multiple cities. She was so clear on that. And she also instilled in us like a very like don't ever ask anyone for help kind of energy where it was like do it yourself. Answer your own questions. Solve your own problems. Do it yourself. Was that approach atypical? I think with a woman, probably. But another thing that happens in restaurants that it becomes, for better or for worse, very family oriented, where these are your family members and it's not just coworkers and there's very few boundaries. And so you tend to work more than you want to. You don't get paid as much as you should. You do things that you wouldn't otherwise do in a regular work environment because much like a family, you have like the pros and the cons of being like, but we're family. But you're not. But we're not. No, no. So I think that line, and I think we've seen it more and more as people have gone back to work, mm-hmm. where companies say, we're family. Yeah. And it's like, well. You're like, well, actually, this is my job. It's interesting that restaurants became uncovered as like a sort of hive of that mentality, because I know to be true that it happens all over the place, like in financial companies and other sort of businesses. And that's their model. And that's how they retain, like, mm-hmm. you know, employee retention. And sometimes people really enjoy that. And sometimes people are scared of that. Well, When it came to Christina, you saw that she had these very clear aims and goals to innovate. Yeah. As you leave that job, did that kind of 20,000 foot view inspire you to move forward? Did that inform how you would leave and then go into Bon Appetit or the New York Times or whatever you'd end up doing? So I got that job because I was going to be in New York for a short period of time. I was like, okay. I'm moving back to San Francisco after New York. I'll take a job at this bakery, like part time. It'll be whatever. And then but within three months, it became clear that I was very much in love with New York. And she had offered me a a job as like a sous chef manager person with salary and and a health insurance plan. I was like, oh, well, maybe this is my sign that I should stay here. But it was not my intention to continue working in restaurants. I sort of moved to New York to then move back to San Francisco as like a way to get out of restaurants. After being there for about a year and a half, I sort of had to have like a moment with myself of like, what am I doing? I'm I'm again working in a restaurant, basically. I'm Mm -hmm. again working for someone else. And I think at that time, it really solidified the fact that I never wanted to open my own bakery. I never wanted to open my own restaurant. And I really didn't want to work for anyone else in that capacity. And so you leave and work for someone else restaurant. in a different capacity. <laughs> you would do the pies and thighs? Yeah, I, well, that, yeah, because I needed I needed to make money. I never had any support. I never had a savings account. I didn't have secret money from my parents. I didn't have anything to rely on. So I was constantly having to work just to make rent, basically. The secret money part, I think it's really key we to We don't talk about that enough, I don't think. We're putting it on here. I'm very proud of that. There's nothing I'm more proud of, to be honest. See, because especially in New York, in Los Angeles. Yes. It is filled with people 
that seemed to just be endlessly floating with cash that cannot be accounted for. No, but it also sets up unrealistic expectations for people in a creative field specifically. What do you mean by that? Explain that for people. I think that if people are like, oh, I'm an artist, I'm a successful artist, I quit my job and now I write books or I quit my job and now I open an art gallery, I quit my job and now I decided to like start a company that like makes a blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wow, that's like the dream, right? Like we all want to quit our job and follow our pursuits Mm. and like be creatively fulfilled. And how do you do that? It's tough when the how do you do that is answered by, well, I have a stream of money that I can rely on so that I can't afford to quit my job, that I can't afford to sink money into a company and start it or a space or a home and buy it. And that's not to shame anyone that has that advantage. I think that's good for them. But I do think it's always very impressive when people don't have that and they had to just like figure it out. Well, so then through the 2010s, when you take these jobs at Bon Appetit, BuzzFeed, and then the New York Times, did they feel like jobs or did they feel like a career? It felt more like a career. I felt like a tradesperson. Right. I was like, I can bake biscuits for you for money. And they always felt like a... I was always making a move that I felt like it was going upward. Mm. It was like an upward mobility thing. I have to work here in order to work here. Now I'm going to work here and then I'm going to do that. And it felt like I was going somewhere. And I think that's why when I was at Milk Bar, I was like, I've reached the end of like, there's no more lily pads here for me. I'm not going to another bakery or restaurant. And when I got the job at Bon Appetit, I it was the first like job job that I had that wasn't in a kitchen or a restaurant. But almost immediately, I was like, this is for me. I felt like this was the beginning of my, like, new career. What about it? There were a lot of things, mainly that I didn't graduate college. And I was now working in an office building where people were writers and editors. And I felt really validated. I felt like I had worked my way up through something through the very back door. Like, I'm like, I work at the same, like, publishing company that makes The New Yorker. How did I end up here? Like, It wasn't even imposter syndrome. It's like whatever is below that. Like I was just like, (laughs) holy shit, what am I doing here? But it was really validating because when I first started working in restaurants and I was 19, I was in L.A. and my best friends went to UCLA and UCSB and I would visit them and all their friends would always be like, what school do you go to? And I go, oh, I don't go to school. I I work. And they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a pastry chef. They're like, oh. And some people were like, that's cool. And some people I could tell were like, you didn't get into college or you weren't smart enough to stay in college or you got kicked out of college or something as if that was like a second choice for me. But it wasn't. It was my first choice. I believed in it as like an academic style career choice. I was like, no, this is like a high level creative pursuit that I'm beginning right now. And so to end up working at a magazine felt like, wow, I did it. I did the thing. I knew that I was going to get here one day. But when I started working in restaurants, I never aspired to work in a magazine. When you're at the magazine, do you remember the first time you thought, I'm actually, I'm pretty good at this. Like, this feels right. Was there a specific recipe? No. I mean, the first recipe I made there was was for biscuits. They had a photo of biscuits that didn't match the recipe. And they're like, these don't match and we need them to before we publish it. Can you do it? It was like a test, but it was a test that they actually needed help with. And I, I did it. I was like, oh, this is obviously a cream biscuit and this is a recipe for a drop biscuit and I don't know the difference exactly but I did and so I was able to like detective this biscuit I'm a biscuit detective a culinary columbo yeah thank you that alliteration is so much better than biscuit detective (laughs) I don't remember the specific time but I just remember over the course of me being there for about a year like I had the same sort of injection of energy and excitement and enthusiasm as I did when I first started working in restaurants which I had definitely lost over those seven years working in restaurants You have this quote about that decade where you said, none of the moves I made were financially incentivized. They only made me more broke. I didn't have any help from my parents. There was no secret pot of money. It was just pure belief, belief bordering on delusion that everything I was doing would one day pay off. Wow. I'm just saying right now that if I ever write a memoir, you will be reading the audio book (laughs) version. So having gone through all this, without a support system, when 2019 rolls around Mm -hmm. and the New Yorker calls you a phenomenon on par with high-waisted pants and Sally Rooney novels, (laughs) what did you make of that? I don't don't know. I've been very bad at absorbing 
the steps of my career with like each accomplishment or phase. And like, honestly, that's what I'm here for. No, thank you. Well, now that I'm like talking about it now, like it's honestly very emotional. I may cry at some point today, but it feels incredible. Like I'm just, it was never really the plan. Like that wasn't my goal. I didn't, I wasn't working towards that. I found myself there. It feels really validating to like deep down kind of know that, oh, I'm good at this and I like doing it and I care so deeply about it. And those three things combined to care about it, to be good at it and to work really hard at it, to have that actually result in something that resembles success. It's very difficult to really absorb. Why does that make you emotional? Because I'm proud of myself, I think. And that feels heavy? Yeah. Stop making me cry. <laughs> I'm not crying. You're crying. Um, yeah, it does feel heavy. I think that it feels validating to be like, oh, I did it. You meet so many people along the way. And there's so many people that I've seen in the last week or two that I've been on this book tour in different cities and people that I worked with at that first restaurant, people that I've texted with, people that have called me like out of the woodwork. It's been a real like Alison Roman, this is your life type time for me. Mm -hmm. And every single person is like, I always knew that you would do it or like you've always been this way. And I'm so proud of you. Like it feels really good to have like, wow, I've worked really hard at something. I've pivoted so many times. I've made choices that I didn't know that were right at the time. But like with a sort of blind faith attitude was like, this is going to work out. And it did. After the break, more from Allison Roman. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. When 2020 comes, you have this very bifurcated year because (laughs) the world shuts down. Yeah. Many people, including myself, like turn to you and your recipes Mm -hmm. for refuge. Your caramelized shallot pasta single-handedly tempered my depression (laughs) and expanded my waistline. I thank you for both. Oh, you're so welcome. You're better for it. I'm still working it off. And I was not alone in thinking this or feeling this way, you went on Colbert, you drank spritzes with Katie Couric, and people around the world are posting about making your recipes in this really fucking depressing, hard, somber moment. Yeah. And it made people so happy and like buoyed their spirits in such a way that like it was as good for me as it was good for them. And it was like the most beautiful symbiotic relationship that I could possibly have ever wish for anybody to experience. So that's like three months of yeah, 2020. That's like the first. <laughs> that's like the first four months of 2020. And also my second book had come out in 2019 right. at the end. So I was like riding the wave of that. Like things were really good. Yes. Things were so good. And then. And then they were bad. Well, everyone's experiencing like a terribly tough time. Yes. You experience a different kind of tough time after you do an interview with the new consumer. Everybody's favorite newsletter. A, a, a news I'm joking. No one's heard of it. I never heard of it. No. I had not heard of it until doing preparation for this interview. Mm. Anyway, I'm not going to recount exactly what you said line by line, but essentially you were critical of how Marie Kondo and Chrissy Teigen capitalized on their brands 
and essentially, in your words, sold out by having product lines at stores like Target. Of course, you then issue this apology. Mm -hmm. But now that we're nearly three years from all of that, how do you make sense of your sentiments in that interview? Like, how do they read to you? Um, They read very careless, frankly. They read, like, dumb and, like, flippant. It's like I was having mimosa brunch with the girls. Like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, like, but if you read the interview. The, instead it was with the new consumer. Yeah, instead uh, the whole world read it um, because of Twitter.com. Um, if you read the article yourself, which if you're curious, you should, there's no specific quote that's particularly bad in the context of I said a sentence and then I said some more things and then I mentioned another person and another context. That's a couple paragraphs. Yeah. And then they were lumped together as if I, you know, two people. And I'm like, oh, they're both women of color. They're both in the lifestyle space. Why did you single out two women of color? Why didn't you bring in X, Y, and Z to this conversation? Plenty was, of white people to bring in. Oh, tons. Where do I start? But yeah, of course. And any person who's like an aware individual is going to look at that and be like, oh, that's not good. Like, that's not a good look. Are you saying you weren't aware? No, because I was like, oh, and this person and this person. I I literally had a copy of um, Forbes magazine on my table because I was in the issue <laughs> and Marie Kondo was on the cover. And I had just read this article from Amanda Mole, and she was talking about how Marie Kondo launched this a line of products to keep your things inside of. Mm -hmm. And this was all came about because the interviewer asked me, what's next for you? Do you ever envision yourself with like a line of home goods? Or a D to C something and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, you know, basically because my whole angle for what I teach is that like you don't need fancy equipment. You don't need special equipment, just a whisk in order to make great food. You can have like a cutting board and a sheet pan and you can make dinner. So if I were to turn around and all of a sudden start selling you cookware, that would feel antithetical to my teachings. It would feel hypocritical. And I made a really big mistake by mentioning people who were doing that in their space. And I mean, lesson one, don't name other people. A, it's not nice. B, it's not smart. C, it's not necessary. And D, especially when you're speaking about like how that's going to come across. Like I just wasn't thinking. I was like, I was literally cleaning out my pantry. I had no press. I had no PR team. I had no support. I was saying yes to every interview. I was like, Sure, yeah, I'll talk to you for 20 minutes and like didn't think anything of it. I was just like gabbing and it was super careless and just had no idea how careless. I just had no idea what was going to happen from that interview. But the context of the interview, wasn't it a business? Yeah, it was basically how do you run your business? What's next for you? Do you right. want to scale up? How do you scale? How does somebody go from writing cookbooks to like actually making real money or becoming a business? And It's a pretty capitalistic newsletter. Yes, and I think my sentiments were anti-capitalist. And I think that that was what was lost on a lot of people because basically what I was trying to convey is that in my line of work as a cookbook author, the way into actual like capital M money, if that's something you aspire to, is through licensing deals. So somebody is going to make your line of pots and pans or put your name on a bottle of something or whatever. Like you have to sell things that are marketed and, and made elsewhere. Which you don't want to do. And I don't want to do that. And I and never you have. You have not made any? There's not no, anything? No, and the irony being, well, people were like, oh, she's being a hypocrite because I had... A vintage spoon or something. Well, it was, it, was was a, it was a woman of color owned small cookware company uh -huh. who wanted to do a capsule collection with me. And oh, they I said, see. would you design like your favorite? And I wasn't, I had like a small percentage of um, equity. Okay. But it wasn't. I wasn't like profiting off of that in a necessarily meaningful way. Because that was the line people used. They said, why would she say this if she is selling this? Right, because it was it was divorced of context. Yeah, the whole a lot of the interview was. But, well, this is the point of the show. Yeah. To do that. But yeah, I was like, oh, I'm going to do this small business that I really believe in because they were making high quality cookware at a really affordable price point, which I really believed in. I see. And, and who's that? Do you want to? Material. Material Kitchen. Yeah. And they're great. I still I think their cookware is wonderful. I recommend it to anybody, especially who's like starting out and wanting something on the more affordable price point. Their things are very beautifully made and they care a lot about how they're made. But it felt like in the moment it was not the time or place for me to justify my words because people were hurting on a lot of different levels. And it didn't really feel like anyone gave a shit. Well, let me ask you this. In the New Yorker profile that you had, you said, I still have not seen a successful story of a woman getting dragged to hell in the way that I was and then coming back publicly and being able to talk. Looking back, why do you think 
you were dragged to hell? Because I, there's a lot of reasons. I think that the velocity of which I achieved success in a lot of people's eyes was very fast. And I think that that is what we do to people in that position, be it a celebrity, a singer, an actor, whatever you want to call them. If they are all of a sudden in the spotlight in a positive way for an extended period of time, it's there's like a an arc where the public seems to be very happy with that. Then the narrative becomes like, are they that good? Are they that? that? Like, mm-hmm. I heard that, that like it becomes like you enjoy this bit of like schadenfreude takedown. And I remember saying to somebody in like March, the conversation was like on my end, things are going too well. And it makes me nervous because I'm I see how it happens to other people. I'm not really a celebrity, but I'm sort of being like talked about like one. And it's feeling very weird to me. Something's going to happen. The shoe's going to drop. This can't last forever. People are going to get tired of me. They're going to get annoyed by me because I'm everywhere. No one likes to see somebody everywhere, really. Something's going to happen. And I sort of said it as a joke, but it happened. And I think that it happened because, A, people were in a pandemic. They had nothing else to do but sit in their home and look at the internet. So everybody was watching the same channel at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was There was no diffusion of information. So it was our entertainment. It was like the first big scandal of the pandemic. It was gave something people to talk about. One of the people involved is a huge internet personality. People really feel feelings about them. And being, about Chrissy Teigen. Yeah, she's like a, a main character on, on the internet. So to be put in the same conversation with this person, I was then thrust into that level. But I think people in like the food industry were really unhappy with things that happened in in their own personal life, at their career trajectory, at the magazines. Like, are things fair? Are things equitable? Like, why do white women always get the blah, blah, blah? Here I was, a white woman getting a lot of attention. It was just like a perfect storm for people to be upset and angry. And I think I gave, by saying something stupid Mm -hmm. and careless, I gave a lot of people permission to publicly hate me. Do you think it was stupid? I think it's stupid in the way where you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was dumb. I, I That's think, not the I same. think, no, I think I should have <laughs> rephrased it. I stand by the sentiments, frankly. It was not mindful or intelligent or to name names at all. Mm-hmm. I could have made the exact same point without calling anyone out. Now that we have some distance from it, mm-hmm. what is the point now that you still stand by? The point is that I believe in something and I don't want to use the popularity that I've achieved and discrediting it by contradicting those beliefs. You described this once as anti-capitalist in my own weird fucked up way. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I don't want you to buy more things. Right. But if I wanted to start a line of cookware, I could because people trust me. Mm. And I assume that I have some level of notoriety where people would buy it. But if I did that, I feel like I'm lying. Contributing part of, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm, I don't believe we should own that many things, frankly. And I don't believe that the only way to become successful financially or otherwise is to like create more physical items in the world. What I was frustrated with was the idea that a person like me, unless I was willing to go down that path, could never really become successful because it's always the next path for anyone in the lifestyle category to be like, well, You've written books, you've done the thing, and now you have to make sheets at Walmart. What do you mean by successful? Like, you understand that's very complicated because you're saying that. And yet before that moment, Mm -hmm. you're like Zooming with Colbert. I mean, not as a friend. (laughs) Yeah, but you've sold books. Like, I think to most people, you had achieved a certain level of success. You're saying that there was a next step. Yeah, there's there's like a tier of person I more was using the like Martha Stewart style, whatever, where you it's like. You want to go to jail. <laughs> I did go to social jail. I went to emotional jail. It was terrible. When you think about, have I reached the ceiling by making books? If I choose to not go down that path. Right. What else is out there? How else do you build a business? Because the newsletter was focused on business. Like, how do you as a creative person get above a book? To own a home upstate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I did do. It was like two hundred thousand dollars. Okay. <laughs> I just mean like I still can't afford to buy in New York. I'm not, not fact checking you. Um, my last question on this because I, I wanted to be of other things to talk about, but I think it's important to understand this because I think you don't make this in the newsletter and home movies without this moment. No, I so don't like, think so either. I think I want because I want to talk about all that. What's most damning, or maybe is most unusual about your case, is that. 
usually when someone is quote unquote canceled, it's because something has been discovered about them. Yeah. Yeah. That was previously a secret. Yes. There's a skeleton in the closet. But in your case, there was not an untoward revelation. It was just you being you. And I wondered in the three years since that happened, did it force you to look more closely at how you move through the world, especially like in these racially charged times? Yes and no. But I think that everybody in the summer of 2020 experienced something. Every single person, if you are a cognizant, emotionally aware individual of our time, everybody sort of was like, oh, shit, and took a look at a lot of things in their life, how they act, how they behave, how they speak, who they know, what they support, how they move through the world. And whether or not that was like just for the summer and then they forgot all about it or if it was like a lasting change deep within a person is up to the individual. But I think what happened to me was just that times a bajillion. But I'm the same exact person as I was before. And that was always my sort of personal outrage where I was like, I was just being myself the whole time. And all of a sudden someone was listening and I said something and it was taken in a way. And you know what I mean? But I think that undeniably... Most people I know are slightly different after that summer, after the pandemic, after everything that happened. I also think that every single person that knew me before and knows me now knows that I'm the same person. I guess I'm wondering then, you don't sound like someone that would say what they said anymore. In that way, you seem changed. It does seem like you. Oh, I mean, I just don't name names. (laughs) So you would, yeah, okay. I don't feel differently about what I said. I don't feel differently about capitalism, about making right. things in the world about being antithetical to a brand that you built to, to celebrity culture, X, Y, and Z. Right. But those are just beliefs that I've had forever. So how did you move forward in that moment when it all came tumbling down? Like as a human being, how the hell did you it was carry on? so fucking rough. I mean, I was also in a pandemic like everyone else. I lived alone. I didn't have a significant other. I was just like in my apartment every day by myself crying. It was terrible <laughs> because... So many people already felt alone, but then to also feel like everybody hates you is so much worse. How do you hold something like that? I don't know. I had a lot of really amazing, wonderful people in my corner. And I think that that's also the thing that gets me through just generally speaking is knowing that like the people that love me, I think are just like some of the most intelligent, emotionally evolved, sensitive, incredible people. They're funny. They're informed, they're caring, and like they all loved me through the whole thing. And they loved me before, they loved me during, they loved me after. And to know that those people are my community, I'm like, these are the people that remind me that I'm not the worst person in the world. They really kept me afloat, even though it was like a very difficult task. I think to provide context for people, you know, in the aftermath of this, Mm -hmm. you lose the external work you had Mm -hmm. at the times, potential cooking shows. Which forces you to create from within. Mm-hmm. And and for myself. And for yourself, which you do starting on June 17th. Oh, God. 2020. Are you going to read from that one? I am. Oh, my God. I, I feel like already embarrassed. Okay. Well, you can be embarrassed. But <laughs> I thought it was kind of moving. So okay, I'm going to read from Thank it. you. Please do. This is the first newsletter you send out. It includes a tuna salad salad recipe. That sounds normal. I want to read from one passage. Okay. You write, where I usually cope with stress, anxiety, etc., with food, the shopping for, cooking, and eating of, the last few weeks have been a struggle to find the joy in any of those activities. A true first in my 15 years of cooking professionally. So no, I wasn't cooking. I wasn't developing recipes. I wasn't working. Usually the recipes I write are pretty unfussed with reflection of what I'm genuinely excited to cook and eat, but pickles eaten directly from the jar and two Cadbury cream eggs are not recipes. No, they're not. Oh my God, I was so depressed. <laughs> oh my goodness. what a re- That's a recipe for depression. Pickles out of the jar and two Cadbury cream eggs. My God. I want to give her a hug so bad. That one line struck me. The last few weeks have been a struggle to find joy in any of those activities. A true first in my 15 years of cooking professionally. Mm -hmm. In the sentence, you ended that line with an exclamation point. That was to let people know that I wasn't like so depressed. Yes. You know, but I I thought I thought it was um, 
a little bit of subterfuge. I, 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 <laughs> I, I read it as a period. And I just want to know, like, was creating this newsletter your way of rediscovering that joy? It was a way for me to keep working. I didn't have a job. <laughs> no one was going to hire me. It was so bad. It was unbelievably bad. And I felt so lucky to already have like an established base of individuals who had followed my work, most of whom like stuck by me through everything. And I didn't go to zero. I still had like a collective group of individuals who were like, I believe in you. I still love you. I still turn to you for X, Y, and Z. But it was the first time where I was truly and really on my own without working for other people or a brand or a company. And I did it because I knew that I had to keep working because if I didn't just start and I knew that it wasn't going to be easy. The first few months were pretty rocky and the reception wasn't like 100 percent warm. So I was like, you know what? Newsletters long form. People are going to either subscribe or they're not. And I was so moved by how many people did. But I really didn't. I wasn't cooking. Because in the aftermath of whatever happened, it became conversations about a lot of different things. And it made me feel like I felt so much shame and embarrassment of just like existing that the idea that I was going to put myself out there in any public way felt absolutely insurmountable. But not just put yourself out there. But the reason I bring that passage up is because it reads really differently than any of the work that you did at the New York Times yeah. or Bon Appetit. Yeah. It reads closer to the books, I think, um, especially right. this last one. But I think when you sort of, quote, lose everything, which I didn't lose everything. You know, I had my book deal still. Like, I was still on contract to make a third book. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, like, truly starting from nothing, but it was, like, a building that had caught fire. And you're like, I don't know if we're going to, like, raise the building or if we're going to try and salvage what's left. So you salvaged what yeah. was left? And I just rebuilt it in an entirely different style, like for myself. But yeah, when you lose everything, you become less afraid of losing anything. And so I thought if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it for myself. Because also nothing is a sure thing. Your job could go away tomorrow. The deal could fall through tomorrow. Nothing is sure. No one's going to work as hard for you as you. No one's going to have your back like you. This was like a me on a raft in the middle of the ocean, truly alone. You said before that moment... I wasn't a human person. I was just seen as the cooking lady. Oof. Dark. But, well, you know, it's funny. So when I started writing the newsletter, the response was so positive and people were like, wow, I had no idea you could write. And I was like, I've been writing like five to seven hundred words in the New York Times every other week for two years. <laughs> but people just Google the recipe and the writing isn't necessarily accompanied by that. People are hungry reading your work. Yeah. We're trying People to get trying to, to put the meal. food on the table. Myself included. Yeah. So I started a blog. <laughs> What's it like to uh, be a human being working in a public space? It's tough and it's wonderful and it's hard and sometimes feels impossible. And sometimes I just can't imagine doing it another way. And I think that the greatest compliment that I could receive that I do often is that I'm the same person that people think I am by watching my videos, reading my books. It's the same person all the time, for better or for worse. And I think that the closer I get to sort of embracing imperfection, humanity, fallibility, mistakes, growth, ebbs and flows, and the more I can talk about that publicly, the more I feel secure in being myself in public. What's unbelievable to me, this thing that you are doing now, the kind of work you're making in home movies and Sweet Enough, it's something you knew you wanted to do back when you gave that controversial interview in 2020, because what people never quote back when they quote that interview are the first couple sentences, which I'd like to read. Yeah, please. You said, I'd rather stay small and always be myself. I'm interested in expanding myself as a writer. But at the same time, I do need to figure out how to turn this into money because you're making something and then it goes away. Mm. I made something and it did go away and then it came back again. It's like you knew it. I don't know if you wanted to get there the way no, you got there. I didn't. People always say, like, do you regret it? Like, do you wish you could go back in time? Da, da. And, like, I think that there are a lot of personality fortifying things that come along with being publicly humiliated on, like, a massive scale. Like what? Net positive, you're just a kinder individual. At least I feel like I am. I think that if there's a possibility, like, if somebody comes up to you and says, 
hey, by the way, like you did this interview with somebody two years ago and you said this thing and it like really hurt me or like it really hurt my brother because he suffers from da 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 and what you said was actually really insensitive. You're going to be like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And I'm so sorry. And you're going to maybe become more aware of that because you're just out here living your life. You're speaking how you speak. You're a good person. You believe in good things. I think that once you know that all these people feel this way about you at once, at one time, the net progress from that is like always just kind of be above and beyond kind and nice and generous. And that is probably the biggest and most obvious shift that can come from being like decimated publicly. You took definitely the long way home. Yeah, you know, I could have done that. I mean, not that I wasn't nice before. I, I think that I'm a nice, I don't know, some people might still think I'm not nice. <laughs> I don't know. But like, oh, yeah, no, everything I've done has taken the long way. I've been doing this for so long now. Everything has been the long, hard way. But I don't know. I think that makes you more interesting. Well, we started with pastries and dessert. And mm -hmm. I thought we'd end here. Mm. To think about that past self and, and now the present self. Mm -hmm. You had this quote in the book. As a member of the pastry department, you're talking about yourself at 19, 20. We were the least respected and the most dismissed, but still we made everyone bread pudding. Imagine being treated like shit every day, but still showing up with a full hotel pan of warm, custardy dessert. Maybe we just wanted to be liked, and everyone knows a great way to be liked is to show up with something delicious. Is this why I got into cooking? Lots to unpack. <laughs> well, that reads like a diary entry. I can't believe we just published that in the book. They're think, like, no I, notes, everything. I think you got there. paid some good money for it, too. Yeah. 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 Okay. So as we leave, is it why you got into cooking? And, and also now, what's your reason for still doing this work? Mm. I do think that there is a level of anybody who cooks professionally, be it cookbook author in a restaurant, a caterer, any sort of form of hospitality, there's a desire to care for people. There's a desire to people please. There's a desire to nurture. And if that is because you didn't have nurturement or care growing up, or if that's just because you had an abundance of it and you enjoy it, there's a lot of ways to get there. It's not always rooted in trauma. But I do think that that is like a common thread for people that do that because it's such hard work and it's like a very ephemeral you know, especially in restaurants where you just like feed people and then you go home. That's also part of why I still, why I pivoted, I think, to books and writing because it felt more lasting. It felt more meaningful. I'm passing off knowledge like now you're doing it at home, like it becomes part of your life. It has like a longer lifespan. It's always nice to know that you can like fill your home if you're like, I'm making dinner. It's a small gesture to be like, oh, I brought you cookies or something like, oh, like who's going to be mad at that? That's just like a simple, nice, sweet thing. Or to invite someone into your home feels very intimate. It's like a fast track to intimacy in a way that like nothing really else is. It's so important, I think, in like the fiber of every single culture in the world. It feels like the through line and people's memories and their families and traditions, like almost everything's rooted in food. And it's still my favorite thing in the world. I've never found anything that makes me happier. You know, you're describing why you do what you do. and. I guess my last question for you, when you're not moving, when you're not cooking, when you're not prepping, when you're not shopping, mm -hmm. and you're left with you now in this moment, mm -hmm. on the heels of all that happened, how do you feel about yourself? I feel really proud. I don't feel sorry for myself. I never did. I made my bed. I laid in it. But like, I felt like, fuck, I have to get out of this. And then I did like I or I kind of felt proud before, but I maybe felt more entitled to my success because I had like been working at it for so long. And now I just feel like proud and grateful and excited. I feel free. I feel like I can kind of do anything that I want. I'm excited to like do things that I don't know how to do yet. I'm excited to like challenge myself. And what I love about this book tour and my media and press that I've done so far especially this podcast, for the first time in my whole life, my whole career, I'm able to talk about like why I love cooking or why I got into it or the like really deep rooted emotional and intellectual parts of like what make this a career. And it is so much more gratifying to me than like what makes a recipe go viral. I'm like, I don't know. And I don't really care. But like this, I care about the connective tissue of being a human person and 
caring about something passionately, making it your career pursuit, and like spending the rest of your life trying to get better at it. I like, I hope this is the best cookbook I ever make until the next cookbook. And I hope each book is better than the next. And I hope that a person who can read all of them looks at them and says, wow, what an evolution. I think that books are time capsules and I feel lucky to be able to write them because it really is like charting the evolution and growth of a person if you put your enough of yourself into it. So this book really is like uncharted territory. I feel like it is. I didn't expect that, but it makes a lot of sense because it was my first job here. It's been like wildly emotional talking about because I'm like thinking about that 19 year old person and how much I believed in this and had no idea that this is where I'd end up ever. It was not the plan, but I didn't have one. And sometimes when you enter in a situation and you're like, I'm so jazzed by this, like I'm so satisfied and stimulated and excited. I have no idea where this is going to take me. Like how freeing is that? And that's kind of how I feel right now today. I'm just like, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next year or two, but I feel like it's going to be really good because I feel really happy and proud of the work that I'm making. Well, and it's in that work that I, too, charted some uncharted territory (laughs) with that raspberry ricotta cake. And baby's first whisk. First. It was not my first whisk. It's your first whisk with a capital W. It was the first with a capital W. Okay, so how was the cake? Really good. (laughs) Okay. Were you surprised that it was really good? I was shocked because I did it. Mm. I was unsurprised because I was following your recipe. Oh, thank you. That was very sweet. Why did you pick that recipe? Out of curiosity. It just looked appealing and it looked simple. Yeah. It makes sense. If you were to say, what's the first one I should start with? That would be like one of the two or three recipes I'd recommend for sure. You know, much like the inflection points we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. I chose the ricotta cake because it just seemed right. I was following some instinct. Instinct is really under underplayed, I think, when we talk about career. It seems to be your through line. It is. Yeah. How did you think my cake was going to turn out? I don't think you would have brought it up if it was a failure. Because of my personality type? Because you're not trying to set me up for failure. You're considerate, I think. You're a very caring individual. I think you care a lot about people. But I also think that I know that cake recipe really well. And I know that it works. (laughs) So barring any sort of like... You know, and my oven turned off in the middle of it. Or I used, I added four eggs instead of two. Like, you know, I I thought I was ready for like a twist. No. Or praise. It was fantastic. Okay. I'm so, so glad to hear that. Last thing. You said, uh, I can't wait for these next two years. If we were to like listen back on this, what do you hope for? What do I hope for? I hope to have another book to talk about. I hope to have... My family gets started. I'm like looking to, I'm looking to start a family. Um, Is that why you came on the show? <laughs> yes. What are you doing in the next year? No. Um, this is an advertisement? We're having a family. No, no, no. I, I have, the position has been filled. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, this book feels very chapter ending and also chapter beginning at the same time. And so I feel like in two years, I hope to be continually surprised in a good way. I hope to do new types of work. I hope to continue to be lucky enough to, like, make a living off of effectively just being myself and teaching people how to cook. Well, I uh, I so look forward to that next chapter, and I thank you for going through all the previous ones with me. Absolutely. On this show. Yes. Allison Roman, a pleasure. Oh, thank you. that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. I want to give a special thanks this week to the team at Shelter PR and of course our guest, Allison Roman. You can find her new cookbook, Sweet Enough, wherever you do your reading. To learn more about Allison and her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. 
For more conversations like this one, I'd recommend our talks with Michelle Williams, David Sedaris, Abby Jacobson, Ocean Buong, Natasha Leone, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, and George Saunders. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is C.J. Mitchell. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Kaylin Ung. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julie Martin, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Betty Gilpin. Until then, stay safe and so long. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.